0: From Nashville, Tennessee, Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week we share insights and inspiration for movers and shakers in the world of business. Our goal is to help you increase your self-discipline, overcome procrastination, and help you to take action on all the things that really matter.
1: We have some radical ideas for you today. We're talking about radical leadership. Got my friend David Burkus, writer for Harvard Business Review and he's an author and he's a social scientist and I'm telling you he has some things that are out there. Uh, which are pretty cool, and it's it's pretty it's going to push the limits probably of of some ideas you might have about leadership. But I think it's it's kind of cool. Um, so I'm going to interview him. He's he's got uh, a new book that's out, and it's called Under New Management, and it's all these kind of really cool and, and sort of out there ideas that are coming from companies that are really getting massive results. So I think you're going to like that. And then after we listen to the interview, I basically put together these five habits of radical leaders, five things that you can do, kind of five choices that you can make that I think are not only innovative, I think that perhaps they are essential to the very survival of your company and to your position because of how fast the world is changing. So it's definitely a thought provoking ride on this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll get started just after this message.
0: This episode is sponsored by Southwestern Coaching. Southwestern Coaching has helped over 11,000 people increase their incomes by over 25% on average. As a successful salesperson, you know the importance of increasing your sales, but sometimes you might just need a little extra push and accountability to meet your goals and grow your business. Southwestern Coaching will help you increase your income through one-on-one sales and leadership coaching tailored specifically to your needs. Together we will elevate sales. To schedule your free one-on-one business action planning session with a Southwestern coach, go to www.southwesternconsulting.com forward slash action catalyst.
1: I have so much respect for writers and people who uh, are, are great writers and who do good work and do research. And, and David Berkus has become a recent friend of mine. I've, I've done some stuff with him that you'll hear about. He's got a big summit coming up, a virtual summit. And I just I think I admire people who write for Harvard Business Review because I don't think I ever could. <laughs> I don't think I'm quite smart enough like in that way. And, uh, but David does. He's a writer for HBR. He writes for Inc., And uh, he's also an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University. And he is the author of a couple books, um, but his new book is called Under New Management. And part of why I brought him on is because it's it's pretty radical stuff, and I think you're going to find that what we're going to get into here is is pretty radical. And I think in general I'm kind of a traditionalist and a fan of the principles, and so I brought him on not necessarily because I agree with everything that he's going to say, but I think it's it's interesting fodder, and um, you know we'll just we'll see how it goes. But his his work is basically talking about why so many of the Common day business management principles have become outdated, and they just they just don't work anymore. And so he's going to talk about that. He's a he's a keynote speaker, speaks to Fortune 500, and uh, just a super cool guy. He has a podcast, and anyways, David, welcome to the show.
2: Oh well, thank you, thank you so much for having me. And if if you really want to write for HBR, I bet we can make that happen. I, I bet we can.
1: Well, maybe maybe we can, but I I don't know. I like to stick with my story that I'm just not
2: smart. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's fair. Well, you bring the story, I'll bring the science and then we could do something together. I bet that that'll work.
1: I like it. I like it. Um, well, and I know I, that's one of the things I do in, in all seriousness, I appreciate. I think I'm a very emotional writer. I think I, I am interested in the the human side like of things particularly. And just because I didn't come up through sort of the academic research as much, although I did go to grad school, but I I appreciate the science. And, you know, we have people like Greg McEwen or Ron Friedman on the show. And I think of you as one of those writers. And, and so I wanted to ask you about that because the whole under new management, you know, thing, like, where did that come from? Like, why, why, why this book? uh, Why now?
2: Yeah, so and and I can I can totally understand where you're coming from because I've I've been sort of there too. I, I kind of have a foot in both worlds. I was an undergrad English major of all things, mm-hmm. and so I'm in it for like what is the story? What are the things people are doing? Let's capture that. Um, but in college, I fell in love with social science and thought like, okay, there's got to be a way to put these together. It's similar to like a Ron Friedman or Greg McEwan, right? We we all sort of write in the space of trying to popularize insights from social science with good storytelling. And one of the phenomenon I found actually was was in the process of promoting my first book, The Myths of Creativity, you can't, you can't write a book about creativity and innovation and not be talking about your Googles and your 3Ms and all of these companies that have you know a little bit different workplace practices, a little bit different management um, practices. And, and those get a lot of questions from people. Well, should we do that? Should we do 20% time or should we give everyone free food or that kind of thing? And this is where the idea for under new management came from is, OK, let's tackle those. Let's actually look at what are the things that a lot of newer companies and even older companies that are trying to be more creative or innovative? What are the things that they're doing that's different from business as usual? And is there an explanation for why it works? And so, uh, you know, we started with probably 20 or 25 different pr- leadership and, and management practices and then narrowed it down to, okay, these are the ones that we can see through the lens of social science are actually a really good idea. Um, and, and also maybe some ways that you can be in the spirit of those ideas without going full on Google and giving everybody 20% time and free food, right? You yeah. might actually be able to kind of uh, tap into it without going the full way.
1: Can you explain? I don't think everybody knows what 20% time is.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, so twenty Google, it actually started with 3M, but Google kind of made it more famous. So right. 3M, uh, it actually came from the senior leadership of 3M realizing that they were terrible at judging what ideas were going to be amazing products and which ones weren't. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things they said is, if you're an engineer with us and you're doing research and development, you can have 15% of your calendar every week to work on whatever project you want. If you think it's got uh, potential and we don't agree, you still have this pr- protected space to work on those ideas. And Google picked it up when they started working. Um, They actually increased it to 20%. um, So now you could have essentially one day out of every week. Of course, some of the overtaxed engineers joke that it's actually should be called 120% time because it's it's (laughs) sort of like you can do it, but you got to get everything else done. But the idea comes from exactly this, this realization that in senior leadership and in management, we might not have all of the information anymore. And it may be a better idea to give them some room to make decisions themselves because they might have a better idea of what's going to work than we can tell from our Excel spreadsheet in the conference room.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think I think that's a kind of a cool idea in general. I, I uh, One of the things I did this year is I took back control of my calendar. And I've been traditionally have either used the automated things or I've had an assistant do it or whatever. And one of the reasons why is just because I've been trying to create these spaces of like time to do like sort of the creative, uh, the creative work. So, but anyways, I think, um, so, so give me, give me, so give me the goods. Like what is the thing that like blew your mind that you said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe people are doing this and it actually works or. Uh, you know, th- what are some of those practices that are really radical?
2: So, uh, I mean, I'll tell you two. I'll, t- I'll tell you the easier one that everybody says, like, I can't believe that that works well. And then I'll tell you the hill that I didn't think I was going to die on, but I did, um, <laughs> which is, which is a big setup. I hope I can deliver on that. But one of the ones that immediately everybody started asking me about is what about these companies that have unlimited vacation, right? What about these companies that just say, eh, you know, you can take off whenever you want, you know, your work, et cetera. It seems like sort of a management nightmare because you never know who's going to be at work when, but when we live in an age where most people are doing incredibly uh, creative work or problem solving work, even, you know, everybody, but accounting these days in, in a company is charged with doing creative work or solving problems or something like that. We still don't really like creative accounting. So that's, you know, that's okay. But, um, So when we're doing that, what we need is, like you said, a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more control. And what was happening at Netflix is probably the one that popularized this the most. The most is there was a feeling that you're not controlling when I'm working and where I'm working when I'm on days on. Why do you need to know and sort of nickel and dime and keep track of all of my days off? And the, the senior leaders of Netflix said, you know, you're. You're exactly right, and that's they they picked up on the fact that it was communicating sort of a distrust for employees that they wouldn't act in Netflix's best interest. So they said, "So we'll we'll just get rid of it." And you know how much time you need this year. You know your family life and your home life. You know your objectives for the company. Get those done because they take, reserve
1: they reserve the right to fire you. Still, if you that's true,
2: no, it's very very true. You don't get your work done. We share you with the competition, right? right. And and they're very very um, true on that. But what what I found most interesting is you dig into it, and one of the biggest complaints is everyone's either going to take too much vacation or they're going to take not enough. And when you look at the data on how many vacation days companies that switch to this take, it's actually about the same as before. The difference is the, the trust piece. The difference is the company saying to its employees, we trust you to act in our best interest with all this stuff and we're going to put the ball in your court. And the the power of sort of autonomy and responsibility that brings makes a much more motivating workplace. So it's not actually about the vacation days at all. It's about trust.
1: Amen. Yeah. I actually love that one. And and we have, um, there's our Southwestern consulting, you know, we got like 150 team members now and, and we're one of the, the beautiful things just to how it's built is we're all scattered virtually anyways. And so it's kind of been like, well, whatever. I mean, you're like, you know, figure it out because we're not all in the same office and that, but I, I, I've, I've, I've always, I've always felt like, I don't want anyone asking me like, am I working hard enough and I don't really want to be asking them. So I, I think that one's really cool. Tell me about that. Tell me about the other one.
2: The, the hill I didn't expect to die on the was... Hill, um, the S- salary transparency, letting everybody know in the company what everybody else gets paid. Yes. Was, and
1: you did a, you did a what a seven and a half minute Ted talk on this that I yeah, watched. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, like, yeah.
2: I mean, this, this, and this is why I said I didn't expect to die on it. I gave, I gave a small little TEDx talk, didn't get much traction. And then suddenly the people at Ted found it put it on the front page of Ted.com and a, a 1.3 million views later, I'm getting emails from people to tell me that it's brilliant and to tell me that I'm, you know, the, the second crazy. coming of some dictator or something that's crazy. <laughs> But, you know, and, and I, I get it. I get people's fears at it because when I first started looking at this, I was sort of like, yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want people to know what I get paid, et cetera. But the truth is, I, I believe I'm an optimist. I believe that most companies are trying to find a way to pay all their people fairly and equitably and in relation to how much effort and value they're creating for the company. And if that's the case, then there's not much to lose by sharing it. The fear is if we share it, everybody's going to get all crazy. Well, the truth is everybody's crazy when it's secret because we're terrible Judges of what each other get paid, right? It, it, we make we make all these assumptions based on what car they drive. Well, they might you know have a really well earning spouse and they don't make a lot of money, right? So we can't judge it by that or clothes or things like that. We're we're terrible when it's a secret at judging what people get paid, and as a result, we're more miserable because we're more likely to assume that somebody is overpaid or somebody else is underpaid, et cetera. But when you can point to the system and go, here's how we determine everybody's salary, and you know it's fair, and now you can trust us. There's actually a huge increase that happens and morale because people believe that if they work hard and provide value, they'll get some of that value in return.
1: But don't you, like, how do you go, do you really trust people to go? I mean, if you go, okay, so like millennials, as an example, millennial come in and go, well, why is that person making more? Because they go, who cares that they've been here 10 years? Like, I'm just as smart as them. I should make the same uh, or things like that, where you worry about people being able to a place an appropriate amount of weight on certain things like, oh, maybe their experience or they took a chance, they were here in the beginning or blah, 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 blah. Or you just go, what the, the heck with it? Just, just, just lay it all out there.
2: So those conversations still happen that the difference I think that's hugely positive is now they're now they're directed at the formula or the algorithm we're using to determine pay and not Larry who's been here 10 years but doesn't work as hard as I think I work you know on day one etc so now we can have a, a much more realistic conversation about okay well we weighted experience at let's say 30 percent of the formula and you think it should be weighted less because you think if you put more that's this is a conversation we can have now in, in a secrecy condition you have no recourse you, you might know that Larry gets paid more because he's been around 10 years, but you can't bring that up with anybody because you're not supposed to talk about it. So yeah, it might not make everybody happy, but at least we can have an open conversation and we can make refinements to the system when there's a kind of a consensus that you're right. We, we overweighted something or underweighted something in our formula.
1: Hmm. What is, so do you put executives in the same category? Like, you know, you got fortune, I mean, fortune 500, some of these guys make millions of dollars a year. Well, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. So, well, it's public. It's some of it's disclosed already, I guess. Right.
2: So some, so some of it's public. What's, what's interesting is with stock options and things like that, it actually is a little more murky than it than it should be. And I think you know the best way to answer that question is to say that I don't actually advocate that companies go from zero to full transparency right away. There's sort of a sliding scale, right? And so you might be in in total secrecy, and if you can take the step to going, well, here's how we determine how everyone gets paid, and we'll share the formula. And I mean, if you wanted to plug in the numbers and do the math, you could, but at least you know, there is a uniform system, that's a pretty big improvement. And that's, that's a lot to ask of people to adjust to in the course of a year or two years. So just take that first step. And then if you feel like you need more, take the next step. Very, I I don't think a lot of companies can manage the transition to sort of full on transparency, especially for that reason. But I think everybody can take a step towards it and benefit from it.
1: Well, it's it's radical. I I will say this. It made me like watching your TED talk made me very thankful that we are such a sales organization. And we work w- with a lot, you know, a lot of the work we do is with the sales function and we almost, it's like they're commissioned. So it's a very transparent thing anyways, where it's like salespeople, unless some of them have bases, but all of our people are all full commission and it's a, it's a nice thing, but, uh, you know, the operations side of our business is growing and I'm going, Oh, this is, this is pretty, pretty out there. Um, and
2: the culture of sales is actually a really good example. There's sort of that friendly rivalry that goes on, you know, that so-and-so got paid more than you, but you also know that you can point to what they're getting commissioned on and that they produced more. And it creates kind of a friendly rivalry that I think is good. I, I think when it's not a friendly a rivalry is definitely a bad thing, but sales is, is a great example of it sort of working pretty well.
1: Yeah, well, cuz you don't have to have the conversations like you want to raise like make more phone calls like go exactly. get a hold us I mean it's it's a uh, is a it's a cool thing. So, what um like how do you know like are you finding that most companies are resistant to this stuff?
2: So uh, you, there's there's 13 practices in the book, l- lucky number 13, which which really came about from the process of elimination that was definitely not a goal. I and I, say, I really,
1: really <laughs> 13 is what you went
2: with. Yeah and I've yet to find a a company that does all 13. Um, some all out of New York city, uh, Dane Atkinson is their founder and CEO, they do, I think eight of the 13 practices. Um, and, and really that's because there's no, I I would love to be that consultant. That's got kind of the four box model and the slide deck. And I can travel around and be like, this is perfect. But as you, I mean, as you know, with Southwest consulting, every company is a little bit different, right? So you've got to kind of tailor it. So, so you know, I, I don't say everybody should do all of these. The goal is to kind of show, here's why it works in a very public sort of famous example like a Netflix. Here's the science behind it. Here's a couple other smaller examples of companies that are in line with it. And if you feel like it's right for you, this would give you a place to to sort of try it. The one thing I advocate almost every company begin to adopt is set limits on their email, right? We're in this 24-7 world and I think it's killing us. So I think we need to either set limits on um, evenings and weekends, giving those back to people or even setting hours in the Day like from ten to two we don't do internal email because that's when our people are focusing in on their work. I think that's one that almost any company should should really think about: is are we overloading our people with too much communication because of email?
1: So on that, what do you do though? Then I mean, it's because it's, to me I go well, yeah, let's not do that. But then it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Then it's just Slack. Then it's just then it's just you know teamwork. Then it's well, just text message. I am like, what's the difference?
2: So a lot of it has to do with settings, right? And one of the, one of the things I actually love about Slack is the very first time I ever used it, about two or three days in, it actually said, "You're getting too many notifications, so we're gonna scale it down a bit." Which I love, right? Because it's oh, the it's the anti-email, right? And that's really that's really the issue is what are we gonna do to our settings? If we switch it over to Slack. That's great. We could keep it as email. The difference is we've got it as a company and as a culture kind of say, what are our communication times and what are the times where we have off to focus on, you know, as Cal Newport would say, deep work, or what are the times we have to focus on friends and family, et cetera. Um, so that's the biggest thing is is making it a choice when people go to the well to, to drink and to communicate, but also setting limits on when as a whole company, we decide these are off limits times.
1: Hmm. Well, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty out there. So you mentioned Dane uh, Atkinson. Yeah. And I had never, never heard of Dane Atkinson, but there is a, there is a line that he said that I thought was pretty, pretty awesome. Do you, uh, it's about the reinvention. Do, you, uh, you
2: do yeah, you great, great leaders don't innovate the product. They innovate the factory.
1: Yes. Yeah. What is that? So say the line again and then tell us what it means.
2: So great, great leaders don't innovate the product. They innovate the factory. And, and what I, what he's getting at is that yes, uh, obviously great companies are built on innovative products and services, but those are the result of great leaders looking at what are the ways that we're structuring our company? What are the ways that we're leading and managing our people? Our people are going to create the innovations. And so what we, as leaders need to do is innovate the way that we're letting them work. Um, And that's kind of what he was getting at. And I, you know, I opened the book, I opened Under New Management with the story of Frederick Taylor, who sort of invented the first management uh, Bible, if you will, and really, you know, was that uh, epitome of kind of the micromanaging manager, got a lot of efficiency done, but kind of drained the soul of it. And ever since then, the great leaders have been finding ways to reinvent sort of his work for their specific company. And as we get to doing more creativity and, and innovative work, we need more and more people looking at what works and what doesn't work for management literature and being willing to innovate their practices so that their people can be innovative.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so, uh, th- like, you got these 13 deals, you've talked about three of them here so far. Um, how do you, and I, I really, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate, uh, you know, just kind of like your... Um, uh, I don't know what the word is, David, but like just sort of the caution of, of going, Hey, you might not want to jump to this full speed. You might not want to jump all 13 of these all at once. Cause it's just like, I think there's some, some wisdom there, but, but I, one of the reasons that I thought it would be good to have you is cause I, I also appreciate the challenge of the, the status quo and the pushing and the, the innovation and breaking the rules. So how do you know as a leader, what are the rules to break, which ones to stay away from? Like Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I, I follow you. So this is this is where actually I admire Dane Atkinson again, and and I think what gets at the core of you know his quote about reinventing the the factory. It's great. Sort of okay. How do I how do I innovate the factory? How do I know which one to tackle? And this is where I think it it actually sort of um, borrows a little bit from Greg McEwen, who we've already brought up and talked about a bit. I think leaders should be, uh, especially for large organizations and, and big bureaucratic organizations, but also entrepreneurs who are kind of using their old companies as a model for how to run their new companies. Company, should be in the business of elimination. In other words, like the number one piece of advice I give to leaders and the managers is figure out what are the things that are blocking your people from doing best their best work. It might be the vacation policy. It might be email. It, it might actually be the secrecy culture. Whatever it is, and eliminate that. And so that's one of the reasons I say that it doesn't. Not all of it works for everybody because some companies didn't need to eliminate it in the first place. But that's really what I think in 2017 and this sort of new era of work. Leaders should be about is what's keeping my people from doing their best work? And then how do I eliminate it or negate it? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's, I think that is always one of the leader's number one job is to just remove the barriers of the people that they're leading, essentially.
2: See, so, so we agree more often than, than you thought when we started I this whole thing. I guess so. I'm a
1: little disappointed about it, honestly. Uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I thought we were going to do kind of like Jerry Springer style or you know, something like that. But It's not too I, late. I can still throw a chair at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking ahead, all of you uh, social scientists, uh, we, we also had not too long ago, Jonah, Jonah Berger. Do you know him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, from contagious, which I loved, absolutely love that book that I I think he's kind of, I mean, he's more on like the marketing side of things, but I think, um, anyways, I'm just always fascinated. I think social science is interesting and the research is kind of like you're, you're studying people, like what are they going to do? So I think one thing that every leader who's listening has to ask themselves, um, this is actually something that keeps me up at night is What is leadership going to look like in the future? Like what, um, I think you mentioned Netflix, like to me, I, I often worry about, uh, I mean, I guess often like pretty regularly, I think about the competition for Southwestern consulting isn't somebody else who does what we do. It's somebody who will completely destroy us that we're not even thinking about like a completely different model. Like it's like, we don't want to be blockbuster video when Netflix came out. We don't want to be the taxi <laughs> cab companies when Uber came out. Right. And so what do you think are some of the next big changes? And, um, y- you know, just what, what, what would you tell leaders in terms of what they can be doing to, to prepare for, what's what's coming because things are changing so so freaking fast
2: yeah so there's a couple things to unpack there so to kind of answer the second part of the question first uh one of the things i wish i wrote i I wish great leaders don't innovate the product they innovate the factory was my idea but it's Danes. but one of the things i wish i thought of before the book was published is someone said it to me this way that the future is already here it's just not evenly dispersed And that's really what a lot of these practices are. They are glimpses at, this is where the future of work is headed because it's being demonstrated by those companies. And so take a look at them and you might want to sort of turn your nose and go, that would never work here. Well, it it, it might, but no one may end up working here if we don't make some of these changes. Um, The other part that you asked is the big, you know, you you said we don't want to be blockbuster when Netflix uh, shows up. Hold on, hold
1: on. Before you you tell me, I I do want to hear, but, but what did you say? Who said that? The future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed.
2: I don't remember. Um, David
1: Berkis <laughs> said it first on the Action Catalyst podcast. We can go that. We'll we
2: we'll make a little Instagram meme and we'll just start calling it. No, it, it happened. I was being interviewed by someone for the podcast when the book first came out. I want to say it was Michael Bungay Steiner, but I'm not actually certain. Um, so somebody brilliant said it. The other question that you asked about, we don't want to be blockbuster when Netflix comes around, that really speaks to Clay Christensen's work on the innovators dilemma. The idea that companies like Netflix get big because they noticed a small part of the market that bigger companies said, and it's not worth it, right? Netflix actually attempted to get bought by Blockbuster, right? Attempted to say, like, we'll handle all of your, what will be your online demand for for movies. And Blockbuster was like, that's not worth it right now. We're making way too much money in, in these retail stores. So it wasn't worth them investing in. But to a small company, that little niche of the market is enough to sustain themselves. And then they use that niche to scale up and to and to move up market as Clay Christensen would say and so that's the biggest piece of advice for leaders in big established companies is don't neglect those small things that might not look like they have a justifiable ROI if you can kind of break even on it but still establish a foothold you'll have a better sense of where the market is going and you'll be able to sort of adjust with it my my friend Peter Sims would call it make lots of little bets that's the name of his book but it's the companies that do that that's that have sort of Netflix insurance right because they already do have have a foothold in that area so when the market shifts that way they can make the pivot way easier than a company like blockbuster that's just been ignoring it for decades
1: Hmm. Um, that is so cool i think um, well those are some big ideas some radical ideas in terms of there's some radical practices but also some really some really big concepts um so i i do have one other thing to ask you before we do david so the, the 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 new book is called Under New Management. Well, it's it's that has been out, but the paperback is just coming out, Under New Management. Where can people go to like get more information about you?
2: Yeah, so uh, I mean, the best place to find out information about me is davidburkus dot com.
1: There's one thing people could take action on, right? The Action Catalyst podcast is like what is something that we can do now to prepare ourselves or to better ourselves as as leaders. Obviously, the education stuff we've talked about, but if there was like a, an idea or a practice or a principle that we could we could do today to prepare for you know what may be a completely new set of management philosophies and beliefs coming out in
2: the next few years what what would that be So I'll give you a a small scale one. I mean, the big one is great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. But the small scale one that really sort of changed my life is we were talking about email and not being on all of the time. And one of the things that I did was I developed a two device strategy. So I have an iPhone and I have an iPad mini. And when I get home from work, I switch them out. And the the difference is the iPad mini is just entertainment and, and friends, social media. It's nothing work related. And it's been amazing just that ability, that physical routine of switching them out And telling myself I'm officially off for the next few hours and it's time with friends and family Mm. has been huge for uh, resting and re energizing so that the next day when I wake up and I switch them back out and I take my work one, I'm I'm far more focused and, and more able to get everything done, which is which is awesome. Been a huge decrease in stress, increase in productivity. And it's weird because it's sort of the anti tech solution. But I think the future of work is really having to figure that out. How do we not be always on so we can do that deep work that creates value?
1: very cool. is who you've been listening to under new management's the name of the book. Uh and David, man, we just uh, we appreciate you pushing the envelope here and and uh helping us be aware to the future and maybe dispersing it a little bit more evenly before it comes and hits us uh, out of nowhere.
2: Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for having me.
1: <laughs> well, I I think there is um but th- there's a lot to learn from these things, and and that's what I want to talk about is sort of like challenging the status quo, and and really what I what I took from David and what I've learned from him as I've gotten to know more about him, and and just also to share with you why I, I thought he would be good for the show and how I think it applies to all of us is um, I think that you know there's there's a couple things so as leader as leaders i think there's there's sort of five five decisions i think we could be doing as a part of creating radical leadership so the very first one is to challenge our thinking To challenge our thinking. And I think this matters more today than ever before, which is part of the reason why I bring people on like David uh, or, you know, uh, we had John Rulin as somebody that I mentioned who recently we had on the show. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I just feel like I'm completely missing the mark here. And I think if we don't challenge our thinking, then we endanger ourselves to going extinct. If we don't challenge our thinking, we endanger ourselves to going extinct. And I mentioned it there in that interview, but it's like, it really is true. Like I, at this point, I'm not worried about so much that somebody else is going to come along that does what Southwestern Consulting does and that they're going to put us out of business. I I don't worry about that. Like we're, we're, we have really good people and we're really good at what we do. I worry more about like, you know what could change the entire state of selling that would would disrupt things or or what is what does sales look like in 10 years and uh, i have mentors in my life and people that i talk to and things that i read solely for the purpose of challenging thinking now you know me like i'm a traditionalist right philosophies i'm principles i'm hard work i'm disciplined. i'm never going to change that but at the same time i am always trying to at least be open and aware of the things that are happening, lest we become the Kodak film that never paid attention to digital cameras or that, you know, we become the net, the blockbuster who didn't pay attention to Netflix or the taxi cab company that never paid attention to Uber. Like that is the, that's part of the threat. And as a leader, I think whoever you're leading or whatever group you're leading, there's, there's value to just at least being open to, to knowing what's going on. Um, the second part of, I think, radical leadership is, he talked about it here, is, is innovating the factory. To me, that is not actually new. I don't think there's anything really new about that. I think that's actually a very time-tested principle around Southwestern. Uh, one of the mantras, not just at Southwestern Consulting, but our whole family of companies, there's, you know, we're part of a, a parent company and this uh, Spencer Hayes, who is for was the, is the majority shareholder and for a long time was the was the chairman of the board, very wealthy and awesome awesome man. He has always said, "You don't build companies, you build people, and people build the companies." So at least for me and our world, that's not really new, but I do think it's radical because I don't think most leaders think that way. Most leaders think uh, Hey, it's all about, we got to have a new product or the newest website, or we need the newest brochure. Or we need the newest, you know, whatever the newest tactic, this or that. And it's like, no, what you need is amazing people period. Right. And don't, don't ever miss that. Like you don't need the newest strategy. You don't need the newest website. You don't need the newest product. You don't need the coolest thing. You don't need the any, what you need is the most amazing people period because those people will solve those problems they will find those answers they they will innovate and so i think that is radical is is building people or innovating the factory as as david talks about it the third habit i think of radical leadership is to be in the business of elimination wow that was a big a big line when he he said that what do you say no to like your not to do list is much more significant than your to-do list. It's like you're, you're in the long term, the not to-do list matters. In the short term, it's like, yeah, your to-do list, what do, I, what do I have to get done today? But in the long term, your not to-do list, the key things you decide not to do, ultimately, I think, shape a bigger course of the pattern of your business or your life. I mean, if you think about it personally, right? It's like if you're a young kid it's like yeah, you have a to-do list. There's things you have to do every day, right? It's like there's there's homework that you have to do and there's you might have practice you have to go to and you might have to do chores or whatever. Those are things that are on your to-do list. But when you think about your not-to-do list, right? You don't want to get caught up in drugs. You don't want to get caught up in alcohol. You don't want to get you know pregnant in your teenage years. Like there's there's all of the you you don't want to drive, you know, drink and drive. You don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like when you look at the significance, the long term shaping of somebody's life, that the not to do things very often are are more significant than the than the to do things. And so, as a business, you have to go what or what are we staying away from? and this is this is really hard, right? This is the challenge because it's almost a conflicting dynamic with what we were talking about earlier about challenge challenging our thinking and innovating because innovating in some ways sort of seems to suggest to us that, Um, we're going to try everything and we're going to try to do everything. And that seems conflicting with going, Hey, we need to eliminate and we need to focus on the critical and the significant and the substantial. Um, And so part of what we're doing is, is, is eliminating, but so there's, you know, there's that dichotomy of innovating and looking at new things, but also restricting and, and being clear about the focus and, you know, how do we do that? How do we how do we know which ones to do and which ones not to do? If you don't see the potential or you don't see the alignment with the path that you're on, then you stay away from it and you're 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 systematically eliminating the things that you either can't do or shouldn't do or won't make a big impact, it's hard, right? There's a there's a balance here to all this. But you're being the business of elimination. The fourth, I think, habit of radical leadership is very much kind of what we're talking just talking about, and David mentioned it. Um, I forget the name of his friend's book, but he said, Um, make lots of little bets, make lots of little bets, and so you're you're you have a few things going on that you identify, and you go, Okay, this could potentially be a multiplier for us, this could be something that creates exponential growth. And one of the things I've always loved about you know one of one of my mentors and business partners, a guy named Henry Bedford, and and um, Henry all the time is promoting. He he basically when somebody has an idea, he doesn't like to talk about it that much. He just says, well, if it's a, if it's a good enough idea, if it's worth discussing, let's just try it. All right? Let's just try it and see what happens, and let's just go after it. And then you and then you sort of see, but you you do it on a small scale, and then. Uh, if you can if you can create success on a small scale then all you have to do is add scale to it which is resources time and energy and you can grow grow it up but instead of making large risks and huge investments on a few things where you can really lose your tail you can make lots of small investments on small things and see which ones work and then you reallocate your stra- your your resources towards those things. You're, you're making, um, lots of little bets. And I think that's very radical. And I, I never until Henry had shared that with me, that was kind of, you you know, it seems counter like this is some of this seems counter to the focus argument, but it's really not because you're really testing things out so that you can determine what you focus on. It's not the same as saying, I'm going to do everything all the time but you're innovating in the way that you're open to these new things and you're watching for them, you're placing little bets. And then once you see the success, then boom, that's when you can go, you can go all in on something. And I thought, I thought that was really powerful uh, when David was talking. And, and then finally the last thing, and this just, this, this blew my mind because I I 100% agree with this. I 100% agree with that quote that we don't know who it's from, but, the future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed. Whoever said that, that is brilliant because I think that is absolutely true. And you see it everywhere, right? Like, um, you know, using social media for business. Like I remember everybody in, in, and I was in college when Facebook was only available in colleges. And when it first hit the corporate market, people would laugh at it and joke at it and make fun of it. Like this is stupid. It's a fad. It's going to go away. But it's like, it's, it was already there. It was just not evenly dispersed. Not everybody was, was open-minded to it. They weren't ready for it. They weren't paying attention to how pervasive it was and how quickly it was, it was becoming. Um, there's things that are happening like that all the time, right? Like I think, one of the things that is, um, has, has been going on is video. Like, uh, well, mobile, mobile websites is another good example, right? I, I think I've, I've probably been hearing for seven years, like you gotta be mobile, you gotta be mobile, like mobile's the new thing. And now it's like, if you're not mobile, your web presence is dead. And, uh, you know, here we are Southwestern consulting. We've been, we've been working on it for three years and we are just about to finally launch our full global rebrand with a fully enab- enabled, mobile enabled everything. Uh, and I'm so excited about it, but it's been a, it's been a, and I would, I would hate to think if we hadn't started three years ago, where we would be if we were just starting that now, I mean, we, that would be, it'd be, it'd be terrifying for the, for the business. Um, but you know i think video is the other thing right as people are talking about hey video is is such a big part of the future and uh there's there's things that are happening like that where you just have to pay attention the future is already here it's just not evenly dispersed and you know some of this as a leader is scary because it's like who knows who knows you you can't you can't solve today's time management challenges using yesterday's time management thinking. But you go, okay, I think the same is true with leadership. As you go, if it used to be if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always gotten. But now, it's like if you do what you've always done, then tomorrow you're out of business. And so I think that ad- adapting and evolving and improving is is a central central part of just the future of business because you, you can resist it for a while but eventually you die right it's like you can't you can't be Kodak forever you can't be Blockbuster forever like you you have to you have to evolve and so as a thinking you know these are five things that you can be doing but I honestly can't tell you with confidence like if you do this, it's gonna it's gonna make you survive. I, it's it's a little bit hairy out there. It's a little bit scary about how fast things change, and and there's big forces and things sh- that the 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 tide moves quickly in the world of technology and social media and uh, just like you know politics and communication, and that the whole world is changing so fast. Uh, I, so I, I I think ultimately, the the best thing that you can do as a leader is is the best thing you've always been able to do which is t- to invest in yourself, in your own personal development, and to work hard and, tr- and keep learning and keep growing and keep thinking and keep serving. And if you have that as part of your strategy, to keep growing and keep learning and, and keep studying and keep investing and keep working and keep serving, then I think that is something that will never change. That is something that is is critical and core to our survival and to your survival. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here this week and hopefully every week tuning in to this show and giving us the compliment of your attention because that's what you're doing. So I thank you for that. I admire you for that. And hey, I think it's part of the radical leadership that is essential to your survival. Well, that about wraps up the Action Catalyst podcast for this week. If you haven't yet, please log into whatever your favorite medium is to listen to the show and both rate this podcast and leave a comment as that helps new prospective listeners determine if the show's really a good fit for them.
0: If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and screenshot this episode to share with your friends on social media. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst and subscribe to our video podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening.